If you've been listening to SSR for a while, you know how this episode intro thing usually works. I tell you about the book, I tell you about the guest, I offer an impassioned plea for help in spreading the word about the podcast, and then I cue up the snappy theme song and away we go. We're shaking things up for episode 47 though, because for our first ever Mother's Day episode, I'm welcoming my own mother as the guest, and I want to tell you all about her before we go any further. Deb Cummins Stilato, aka my mom, is the president of Think Good Leadership, and she describes herself as a nonprofit fixer, trusted advisor, and passionate igniter of compassionate people and organizations. She specializes in something that most people, including me, are terrified of, change. Deb works with people and teams to reach their full potential and navigate transitional moments. And if I can just brag about her for a minute, she's really good at it. Learn more about the work she does at www.thinkgoodleadership.com by following her Facebook page at Think Good Leadership and by joining the journey on Instagram at think underscore good underscore leader. Mom also loves getting involved in volunteering with community organizations in my hometown of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In her free time, she enjoys traveling, reading, spending time outside, going to concerts, and watching trashy reality TV a hobby that she has thankfully passed on to me. Long before we bonded over The Bachelor and The Real Housewives, though, we had a ritual of bedtime reading. And one of the books we both loved best when I was little was E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, written in 1952. We both also loved the cartoon adaptation, a Hanna-Barbera production released in 1973. When I invited Mom to join me on SSR for Mother's Day, there was barely a thought about what book we'd cover. It had to be Charlotte's Web. When the book begins, we're introduced to Fern, an eight-year-old girl arguing with her father about his plan to kill the runt of a new litter of piglets that's been born on their family farm. He agrees to spare the pig's life if Fern promises to take charge of his care, and a beautiful new friendship is born. Fern nurtures the pig, who she names Wilbur, until he is so big that he must move to her uncle's farm instead. There, Wilbur struggles to find his place in the new barnyard. He meets a bunch of busybody birds, the selfish but hilarious Templeton the Rat, And, of course, a wise spider named Charlotte, who ultimately agrees to help save his life when he learns that the farmer, Mr. Zuckerman, plans to slaughter him for food in a matter of months. The relationship between Wilbur and Charlotte is one of loyalty and tough love and sacrifice, and one that illustrates the power of simply being yourself. The conversation you're about to hear between me and my mom is nostalgic, and it ranges from philosophical to silly. We talk about the importance of listening, the value of friendship, how we see ourselves versus how others see us, and loss. We share a lot about our love for animals and speculate about the personalities of the characters in Charlotte's Web and our own pets. We even assign characters to our family members based on their personalities. You'll also hear some embarrassing stories about me along the way. Yikes. I'm excited for this community to meet my mom and to learn more about me in this episode. And I'm so grateful that Deb, it's weird calling her Deb, joined us as a guest. Thanks, mom. Thanks also to Libro FM, who I'm newly partnered with. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. How cool is that? Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter SSR Pod. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting your local bookstore. I'm supporting my local Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic. 
Stay in the loop about all things SSR by following us on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. If you're loving what you're hearing, please, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really do matter because they help boost the show in the rankings so that more people can find it. And if you want to show your support for the pod even further, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast to learn about becoming a Patreon sponsor. You get some pretty awesome perks in return. Thanks to all of the Patreon sponsors out there listening. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Deb. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having me. So everybody's going to be able to figure this out probably five seconds ago when I started recording. Uh, But Deb is actually my mom. Can you say something else, Deb? Because we just need to lay some groundwork here. Our voices are very similar. Like the time when I went to GW and met your sorority sisters and one in particular actually fell down laughing because we sound so much alike. Yes, our voices are very much alike. So listeners, it's going to be your big challenge today to try to like figure out who's talking. I'm told that mine is maybe like a little scratchier, a little bit lower. So I don't know if that's helpful. We'll see. Everybody just roll with it. We're going to have fun with this today. I'm so excited to have my mom on the episode. It feels like like take your daughter to work day but kind of like flipped I like that it's kind of fun and it's our Mother's Day episode which is why I invited my mom happy Mother's Day mom I guess it's a little late now because we would have celebrated this past weekend when the episode comes out but I hope that you'll have had a great Mother's Day by the time we release this episode well I'm sure that you will make it a fantastic unforgettable Mother's Day no pressure no pressure at all And happy Mother's Day to all the moms listening, and I hope that if you're not a mom, that you are pampering your mother the way that she deserves. Also, happy Mother's Day to all the pet moms out there. This is my first Mother's Day as a dog mom myself, and I have high expectations. Hi, Matt. I hope that there's gifts coming my way from Irv. Oh, yeah. Uh, By the way, I'm also, uh, in addition to being your mother, I also am a stepmother to the lovely Juliana, and I am a pet mom as well. I have the lovely Mia and two fabulous cats. Yeah, so you you should get like a lot of Mother's Day love is what you're saying. I'm thinking I will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, since I've mentioned Irv already, there's one other note that I want to make at the top of this recording because there's something a little bit different about my recording setup today. Usually Irv is blocked out of the room where I record because sometimes he can be a little bit noisy. But if you follow me on social media, 
you know that at some point in late April, Irv had a little bit of an illness, um, and he's doing a little bit better this morning, but I do have him here with me. So if you hear like dramatic sighing or the jingling of a collar, it's Irv, and we should all just give him a free pass because he was under the weather, and I just want to keep an eye on him. So again, apologies for any random noises, everybody, but just picture the cuteness of my dog in your head, and I think I think you'll be able to forgive and move on. But today we're talking about Charlotte's Web, which was your choice, Mom. You didn't really have any other like plan B. This was sort of your like go-to, and I want to know why. Like, why was this the book that you wanted to talk about? I didn't give you options. You had like free reign as my mother, I sort of like broke some rules and just let you pick what you wanted. And I want to know why you chose this one. So I absolutely love this book and I absolutely love this movie. And I have really fond memories of reading this book with you and also watching this movie about a million times with you. A million. And a million. And, you know, I think the reason that I love this book and I picked this book is because really my love for animals. And I'm so passionate about animals. And ever since I can remember, and I'm sure ever since you can remember, I have always pictured my animals talking and doing activities as people. Like I have this really funny thing where I'd love to think about my pets driving a car. And I used to have this soft-coated Wheaton Terrier named Maddie. And I loved picturing her driving a car, specifically one of those cube cars Mm -hmm. with a derby hat on. So I've always like attributed human characteristics to my pets. And I think that's why this book really always stuck in my head because these animals that are in this story are just such wonderful characters. And um, I love it. Well, listeners, this should explain my attachment to Irv, first of all. Now we all know why I'm so obsessed with my dog and why he is like the star of my Instagram. But yes, I too have very vivid memories of reading this book with you. I think we read together like all of the E.B. White books. I also remember reading The Trumpet of the Swan and Stuart Little. Like I think we must have gone through an E.B. White phase where we just read through all of them and it was like our nighttime ritual together where you would read these to me. And the movie, I love the movie, and I I hadn't seen it in years. I wasn't sure if it was, like, a big deal of a movie or if it was just, like, a cartoon that we happened to find, but I think it was a pretty big movie. It was a Hanna-Barbera production. It was from 1973. We had it, and I have such distinct memories of certain scenes. For some reason, like, as long as Matt and I have been together, there's this scene from the fair where there's the rat (laughs) Templeton who's, like, just luxuriating in all of the food that's been left on the fairgrounds, and he has this song about, about, yeah, he's rolling about. He's like, a fair is a rat's paradise, and I could sing the song on Mike, but I'm not going to. I'll include a clip of it in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. But for some reason, I've always like joked when Matt's been sort of like enjoying a lot of food as you can when you're six foot three. I've always sort of like sung that song in my head because I feel like sometimes like I just picture Matt like rolling about and you know, all of his favorite food, which that's kind of offensive to him. But I say it with love. So <laughs> it's okay. For some reason, I'm just saying that that memory is very clear in my head of certain scenes in that movie. And then coming back to the book now, the lines 
are so exact between the book and the movie. Like they really did a good job, I think, of staying true to the to the book with the cartoon. And for those who haven't seen the cartoon before, I know there was a live action movie that came out in 2006. I didn't see that. I don't think it got great reviews. But if you're a fan of Charlotte's Web and you haven't seen the 1973 cartoon, track it down because it's super cute. And like my mom said, we watched it millions of times when I was growing up. Did you read Charlotte's Web when you were a kid? Do you have any memories of that? I think that I did. What was the year that it came out? 1952. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was not born in 1952. Decades to go. Decades. Maybe like someplace in the decade after the 50s. (laughs) But yeah, I just have, it's so funny because obviously I listen to every single one of your podcasts and some of the books are really, they're so vivid in my mind and some are not as vivid. And this one, I, I just feel like is embedded in my head and my heart in some way. So I do think that I read this as a kid and then that I was so excited that I would be able to share it with you and like you, and I'm sure we'll talk about the movie more later, but I in particular have the sound of the baby spiders mm. in my head because they sounded like us. Mm-hmm. They had these little, they were like, hello, Charlotte. <laughs> So I have that in my brain, but yes, I do remember reading it. I just remember it being part of, maybe it's just part of who I am, this book. Did I like this book when I was little? Because most of the time, so this is like a fun perk of you being here, because most of the time when I have guests on and I'm supposed to be talking about my experience reading a book, I sort of have to like try to remember how I felt about it, but you were there. So like, do you remember how I felt about this one? You did love this book. And in context, books have always been this predominant part of our lives together. And so we would commute a lot of times when you were very little, when you were in preschool, baby school, um, you made this commute from Doylestown. Well, we would commute from Doylestown to Easton to Lafayette College, or Lafayette was a big part of our life. But when we were in the car, we would listen to audiobooks all the time. Well, because that was like and an you, hour each way, right? Like that was, it was, it was a long commute. It was an hour each way, and you actually learned to read turning the pages of Disney books. Mm. So I would put a cassette in the car, and you would have the book, and you would follow along. And then one day, I swear you were maybe three or four. You were young. You were very young. And you read the book. You read the whole book. I didn't have the audio tape in. So we have a kind a very long history of a love for books and sharing them together. And I do remember this being a nighttime ritual. And I do remember you loving this book. So yes, long answer to a short question, which I'm known for. But yeah, you loved it. That's why you're a great podcast guest. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Already. I'm you're all, 10 minutes in, less than 10 minutes in, actually. You're already an excellent podcast guest. So uh, thanks so much. Getting back into Charlotte's Web, I know you texted me when you first started it and you were super excited to be back into it, but I want to know more. Like in those first few chapters, how did it make you feel? What were your reactions? Did you have like a different take on any of it as you were coming back to it? I would say probably like 20 years later. So I felt so nostalgic reading it. And I think one of the other things that's going on for me, and you've talked about it a decent amount on the podcast, is that, you know, I lost my mom in September and I have this weird thing that's going on and I finally figured out what it is. And my mother loved nature. Like she, she was crazy about nature. And since she died, I've become almost obsessively compulsive about walking my dog. And I have 
become really acutely aware of nature in a different way. Like I can't remember enjoying a spring the way that I'm enjoying the spring. I'm seeing it more vividly. I'm hearing it differently. And I feel in some sort of weird way that this is like this legacy she's leaving inside of me. So as I was reading Charlotte's Web, the magic of this book is just the writing and the beauty around the seasons and just feeling like, yes, I'm in that season and all these wonderful things are happening and the colors are bursting and the birds are singing and piglets are being born. And so that was the thing that struck me the most. Like I was very absorbed in so much of the just descriptive beauty of the book around nature and, and the animals. I totally agree. And I thought about Nana a lot too while I was reading it because she also loved animals. Like she loved being outside, mm-hmm. but she also like just was obsessed with animals. I'm sure that's where you get it. And then that's where I get it. And she had a tendency to personify and anthropomorphize animals as well. So I was thinking about her and, and I'm sure, I don't know if she read this book with you when you were growing up, but I think she probably would have loved this book if she didn't. I feel like she probably watched the cartoon with me at some point and was annoyed by it, but probably liked the idea of it as an animal lover. <laughs> the other thing that struck me is not only do we love animals, but I have a particular love for baby animals. You do. I do. And so when I was growing up, I don't know if you remember this, but I wanted to be a vet for, I wanted to be a pediatric zoo vet. It's so specific. specific Yeah. So weird. And uh, so the the thought of these baby animals, and I don't like birds, I'm going to play it straight up. So the geese and their over-talking were really annoying, but the whole idea of these baby animals was just over the top for me. I was getting just so excited about thinking about Wilbur and all his pinkness being born and just wishing that I kind of was wishing that I had a piglet. I agree. He's so cute. He's cute in the Uh, movie. He's also really cute in the illustrations. The illustrations in the book itself, which are by Garth Williams, are really adorable. And I actually, I don't know which copy you ended up getting, but I ended up with this like special anniversary full color edition. And I felt bad marking it up in the way that I have to do to prepare for these recordings because they're so pretty. The illustrations are so pretty and it's on this like really soft, nice paper. But I loved the pictures, which is fun to say as an adult. And something that I discovered while I was researching that pertains to the beginning of this book is that when E.B. White wrote it, he originally didn't have Fern at the beginning. And Fern wasn't really part of the original drafts at all. Like in the beginning stages of him writing it, his big dilemma about how to start the book was more like, should he open with Wilbur, the pig, for those who don't remember, or Charlotte, the spider. Like he couldn't figure out who to focus on in that first chapter. And then ultimately after a lot of drafts, he added in this little girl named Fern who was then going to be this voice of justice because there's an amazing first line of this book. And I think it's also the first line of the movie. And Fern just says, where's Papa going with that axe? And so he kind of figured out that that would be the best window into a story like this for kids who rightfully so would like be taken aback by the fact that this poor little pig's life was at risk from the moment we meet him. Are you surprised that Fern was a late ad? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about what the story would have been like without her. I think she's a great heroine. Um, She's a great female character, a strong, like, committed little girl who is going to fight to the end to keep this piglet going. And I really love the fact that she she's like the social justice character of the book. And so I it would be sad for me if she wasn't in it. I think it's it's interesting that of course she's portrayed towards the end as being 
obviously taken away by something better, a boy, but I love the fact that she is this caretaker and I love her journey with the animals and, and almost the special place that this barn creates for her and her solitude. And so I think it would have been sad if she wasn't in it. And certainly I think it sets the tone for this isn't just a cute story about a couple animals talking animals with each other. It is about justice and fairness and fighting for what you believe in and all those things that are also really important to us. I pulled out a few of her quotes from the beginning of the book, just because I think, like you said, it's important to note that she ends up being this voice of reason, this voice of justice. I think she sort of ends up being like the voice of the reader because I think most kids who are reading this book would be unfamiliar with the idea that like as a farmer, you have these animals and just because one's the smallest, you have to kill it because I guess it becomes like a drain on your resources and you can't use it for anything. Like most young kids reading this book would would be very confused by that idea. And so I think it is important that Fern like represents that voice so that kids can get like a foothold in this story after her father explains to her that like he's going to go kill Wilbur who's the runt of the litter she says do away with it you mean kill it just because it's smaller than the others please don't kill it it's unfair the pig couldn't help being born small could it if I had been very small at birth would you have killed me and again like I remember all of these lines so vividly from the movie I think they used all of them in the cartoon like down to the very last word and yeah like I, I think the book would not have been the same without her it's very emotional with her in it because you sort of like you get the human connection to the animals and I think you get like a clearer sense of like the morals and the ethics of what's going on in this barnyard. It helps tie in the way that the author talks about the seasons and the seasons of change and she's changing you know she is starting in one place and she ends and so it's really well matched. I actually have this my copy is a hard copy book. Mm. Did you have this inch uh, forward in the book? Uh, excuse any page turning listeners. I actually don't have one in mind. Tell me about so yours. I had I had this forward by somebody named Katie DiCamillo, and mm. I didn't look up who she was. She's like a big deal middle grade author now. She wrote Because of Winn-Dixie and like a bunch of other oh. um, more recent middle grade books. Well, it's really interesting. And she was really opposed to reading this book because when she saw the cover, she thought it was like really pathetic that Wilbur looked super pathetic. Oh. And she says that she was strong armed into reading it by a writing teacher who held the book up as a miracle of storytelling. And she also talks about, you know, like the fact that this book doesn't turn out well and how you deal with that with kids. And she has this really great quote by E.B. White that says, all that I hope to say in books, all that I ever hope to say is that I love the world. Mm. And I thought that was just, I, I love this introduction because I, for me, it just got me excited about reading it again. And she also talks about just the wonder of his writing, but the way that that it's set up with Fern and the spring and all the things that are going on are just perfect. Yeah, I love that quote. And I think it speaks to a lot of the things that I read about E.B. White as I was researching, because he sounds like a really interesting guy. I found some similar quotes where he was talking about how the fact that, like, this is not really a book about Fern or about Charlotte or about Wilbur. It's just a book about, like, the world of a farm. Like, he was just fascinated about 
farms and barns. And he grew up, I think, with a family farm that he would go to occasionally. And then when he got older, he bought a farm in Maine with his wife. And there's this fascinating backstory to Charlotte's Web. The backstory that they say sort of inspired the story was that he was raising a pig for slaughter when he bought this farm in Maine as an adult. And the pig got sick and died before he could kill it. And it really messed him up emotionally. Like he realized Mm -hmm. that like he had sort of let this pig down at many levels because his original goal with the pig was to take its life. But in the meantime, he hadn't even taken good enough care of it so that it could like live that Mm -hmm. long. And so he had all this guilt about the pig. And it sounds like he was a really sensitive guy. Like he liked the idea of farming, but sort of the actual process of it was really hard on him. So that's interesting, an interesting commentary on his personality. And then in that same barn, that same summer when the pig died, he spotted a spider egg sack hanging in the barn, like near where the pig had been living. And he took the egg sack because he couldn't find the spider. And he took it back to New York City with him because I guess he and his wife would like go to the farm on the weekends, then go back to New York uh, during a week for him to write. And he actually took the spider egg sack back to the city with him and like watched it hatch. So those were kind of like the threads that he pulled together to write Charlotte's Web. So he sounds like a really interesting guy who he wasn't necessarily focusing on any one of these characters. He just had this experience that was very formative growing up on a farm, raising animals, and then later on, like seeing what happens when things don't go to plan as a farmer, as like the human who's supposed to be taking care of all these lives. And he wanted to envision a world where like the pig could have lived. And basically Charlotte's Web is his attempt to make that right, which I think is really sweet. I agree. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I like him a lot. I like, I'm very curious about him. I think there's been a lot of books written about him because when I was researching like articles to read and stuff, a lot of the articles are about the books about E.B. White rather than the book Charlotte's Web itself. So that's kind of interesting. If you're interested in E.B. White, I think there's probably a lot out there about him. Stuart Little came first um, for E.B. White fans out there and his editor actually didn't know that he was writing Charlotte's Web he showed up in her office and was like okay here's my manuscript and she was like okay great is this a carbon copy but it was literally the only copy he had of it again this is 1952 so I think that's also kind of an interesting fact like he kind of wrote it and was like okay here it is and didn't give that much thought to like sharing the idea with her like she had no idea it was coming and then to your point about the ending that we'll talk about this but it's a sad ending and Charlotte spoiler alert, dies, but the publisher originally actually wanted him to change that. They wanted him to make it a happy ending, and then later on in 1973, when the cartoon came out, they were pushing him to agree to change the ending for the movie, and he stuck to his guns on that also. And so in every version we have, we have this sort of melancholy ending. But I think that's important. The book, I don't think, would have been anywhere near what it is if Charlotte hadn't died. I totally agree. And I want to to circle back briefly to a comment that you made earlier about Fern and Fern's journey because I love that you mentioned Fern becoming boy crazy at the end because it makes me feel like you're really a diehard listener of SSR that you picked up on this because I probably wouldn't have picked up on it if I hadn't been spending all this time digging into kids literature and like looking for things that I perceive to be like slights to female characters in particular. And it does make me so sad that this male author would assume that like the only thing that could possibly detract Fern from this place that she loved, which was the farm, is like a boy. And also the fact that it was her mother who was like really hoping that she would have an interest in boys. It's just so typical of, like, female stereotypes that, like, the mom would be concerned that she didn't have an interest in boys. 
um, and that she would be like worried about it and asking the dad like do you think we need to be worried that like she's at the barn all the time and like not meeting boys that she can spend time with she's eight years old people she's really young and then (laughs) in the end like she would actually be taken away from this world that she's built this little like imaginary society in by a boy named Henry like I just I think it's I get it that this is you know the 50s and like it all feels very idyllic and like it's a very sort of easy plot, but it made me a little frustrated in hindsight. It's a little cliche, the Ferris wheel, you know, the magic of the Ferris wheel. And I think it's interesting because in some ways you are a little furnish. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to say you're a little bit like Fern. <laughs> um, Fern was absolutely an introvert, I think. And people who listen to your podcast probably wouldn't know this about you. But since I'm your mom and I'm allowed to be on here, uh, you're you're very much an introvert and you're an introvert to a very extroverted mother. And so um, just like Fern's mother would be like, okay, enough barn time, I might have said to you, you know, I would take you to the pool and there would be kids all around and you would just kind of be hanging out with me or reading your book or doing really introverted things. and. <laughs> I'd be like, don't you don't you feel like you need to talk to people? And you were like, mm, nope, not so much. So I sort of could picture you as being Fern and having Wilbur and you sitting in the barn and you writing in the barn and you making up this incredible fantasy world, which maybe is another reason now that I'm saying it out loud, I love the book so much because I, I can sort of see you in that role. But you were never boy crazy, boy crazy. And I did think it was weird because most mothers, I mean, I certainly dreaded the day that you actually got a little boy crazy. I didn't want that. I was was like, no, that's not happening. Go play with the pets. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt that the pets were safer than boys were. (laughs) And Ferris wheels. Yeah, and Ferris wheels. But Aside from that, up until that, I do really love Fern as a character, and as I just think that she she demonstrated really just amazing commitment to this pet and responsibility and ownership. So, am I allowed to tell the funny story about you and pets and not wanting to be responsible for pets when you were little? Yeah, actually, you can because I made some notes on this reading about. The fact that Fern is portrayed as this, like, intense maternal character, like, she saves Wilbur's life and her dad basically is like, okay, if you want to save his life, that's fine, but it's not my problem. And you'll have to take care of him, you'll have to bottle feed him, you'll have to, like, just manage the whole situation. And it's this very, like, hardcore mother presentation of Fern from then on like I think the word enchanted is used she was enchanted by Wilbur she dreamed of him there's all of these like (laughs) pictures of her cradling him with a bottle and I think like on sort of a wider level I think like this is just sort of again like a very cliche presentation of like a little girl mothering something and I think not all little girls are like that and I certainly wasn't and so I, at a personal level, in addition to, like, me being a little frustrated by the fact that, like, the expectation is always that a little girl is going to, like, mother a small animal more personally, as I know you're about to share, I totally didn't relate to this. And it just, like, made me a little uncomfortable, to be honest. Well, that's because Herb wasn't in your life. Yeah, like Herb, if, yeah, it's different now. If Herb had shown up in your life at eight, it would have been a completely different story. Yeah, totally. Different. Mm-hmm. But... So you 
really were averse to this maternal responsibility Mm -hmm. when you were young. And it showed up in a variety of different ways. So we had this dog, like you had waited forever to get Maddie when you were 13. Mm -hmm. Allie's grandfather bought her this puppy. Mm -hmm. And the puppy came from Ireland and she had this countdown and, and she had a book where she would mark down the days till Maddie's arrival. And then when Maddie arrived, I think that fantasy of Maddie was better than the reality of Maddie. And she was ways. also, listen, she was also like a really difficult dog. And she, she hated really me. Crazy. She did not like me. <laughs> well, she shattered, yeah, she shattered yeah. some of your fantasy about her. Totally. But, you know, I, of course, was like, well, you're her mother. I well, like, no. And, and you would be... No, I am not her mother, and that's ridiculous. And that actually started when you were way younger than that, when uh, they had those things. I can't remember what they were called. Like Tamagotchis or Nano Babies, and I had a Nano Baby. And you wanted the Nano Baby so badly, but we got the Nano Baby, and it freaked you out because the Nano Baby was really, really demanding, and you were just like, I'm not going to have this. And you actually took the Nano Baby, and you hid it in a suitcase. And zipped it up. Like, you were like, get this thing out of my life. Take it away. So, yeah. All right. So now I'm rethinking the whole fern thing with you. I think I love the thought of you sitting and watching and being reflective about the barn. I think you would have loved Wilbur, but I'm not sure. I, I don't see you cradling him in your arms with a bottle. I think that would have, like, gone beyond your limits. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely parts of Fern that I relate to and parts that I don't. The weird thing is, like, when I read it as a kid or when you read it to me as a kid and when I watched the movie, I remember being much more tied to Fern and, like, really liking her as a character. And reading it now as an adult, I was much more interested in the animals. And I think it's just because, like, as a kid, you relate to the kids. And now I'm like, first of all, this girl is a little bit annoying in certain ways, which, you know, kind of funny because she was like me in a lot of ways. But also, I just, like, wasn't as interested in, like, her day-to-day stuff. I thought that the way that E.B. White wrote the animals was a lot more interesting. But yes, that's how I was with small animals. And I was thinking about that while I was reading this book. I did the same thing with my Furby. I was talking to my dad about that this (laughs) past weekend. He had to hide my Furby because the Furby was also too much pressure. It just took me a little bit longer to get attached to like to, to like mothering animals, and now I have her, and everything's perfect. So yeah, Fern, Fern, and I have some things in common and some some differences as well, which I think is which I think is healthy. Like I get her, but we also have some healthy distance. You don't have to be Fern. I, I don't mean, have to be Fern. You don't. I just have to be me. You have to be you for sure. So let's talk a little bit about Wilbur. I uh. couldn't help but think that. Wilbur and Irv's personalities are kind of similar because, and you can speak to this as somebody who knows Irv intimately. Listeners, I know so many of you know Irv from Instagram, but like you don't know, know Irv. Irv is is definitely an introvert. He likes his alone time. He does not really like to be the center of attention, much like Wilbur. He is, he gets overwhelmed kind of easily, and sometimes he just, like, needs alone time. But he's, like, the sweetest little animal, and he can be kind of serious, but also very silly. Like, he has two modes. He either has a very serious face, or he looks like an idiot with his, like, tongue hanging all the way out. And that's kind of how Wilbur is. Like, he's he's kind of introspective, but he has these moments of just, like, ridiculousness where he's, like, rolling around the barn. And he really wants friends, but he doesn't necessarily want to put himself out there. He's a little shy, and he doesn't want to be alone. And He's just this very sweet little guy who it's it's very easy to become attached to him quickly. So do you know the tech 
technical difference between an extrovert and an introvert? I do, but our listeners might not. So why don't you share? So an extrovert gets energy by interacting with others and an introvert gets energy with their own ideas, thoughts, and feelings. And I think that both Wilbur and Irv are introverts because the other definition of an introvert is somebody who's more concerned about the depth of their friendships Mm. than the breadth of their friendships. So I know that Irv, shout out to Slider, had Mm. the best friend. And he is, you know, he is just a love bug. He is such a adorable little guy with such a sweetness about him. But I do think animals have these introverted, extroverted tendencies. Now, I'd love to hear what your other listeners think about that. But because I've had so many pets in my life, each one of them has a very unique personality. And some of them are very introverted and some are super extroverted. And so Wilbur, it's just this, he wants the depth of the relationship, the intensity of the relationship. You know, he wants to connect and learn from Charlotte. He's amazed by Charlotte. So, yeah, I can see where you would get that. And it's sad because, much like Irv, Wilbur has this relationship with one girl. You know, in Irv's life, Fern is me. Um, When he's a baby, Wilbur is with Fern all the time. And then Fern is told that Wilbur is outgrowing the pen that her dad has for him. And so they have to sell him to her uncle, Mr. Zuckerman. And so he moves to this farm, which isn't very far away from where Fern lives, but Mr. Zuckerman tells Fern that she's not allowed to take him out of the pen. So all she can do is sit there and watch him. And it's very sad for him because he hasn't quite adjusted. He hasn't made friends. Like, he doesn't quite know his place in the in the farm and in the barnyard. Um, and so he, like you said, he's, like, craving friendship. He, like, wants to know the animals that are around him because Fern can't be there all the time. And also Fern is a human. And so he's never going to be as as tight with her as he might be with another animal. But he's just like not quite sure how to make friends. And at first he has these antics where like the other animals are starting to chat with him, but they're kind of making fun of him or like feeling him out. And they think he's kind of ridiculous. I love the scene when he is like coaxed to get out of the pen by one of the birds. And she's like, look, like there's a little opening. You could just sneak out. And then (laughs) Mr. Zuckerman comes out and they're like, oh no, we have to get the pig back in. And he freaks out. He doesn't know what to do. And so all the animals are shouting at him and like giving him instructions. And I pulled out the quote about this scene because it was so cute. It goes like this. Poor Wilbur was dazed and frightened by this hullabaloo. He didn't like being the center of all this fuss. He tried to follow the instructions his friends were giving him, but he couldn't run downhill and uphill at the same time. And he couldn't turn and twist when he was jumping and dancing. And he was crying so hard he could barely see anything that that was happening. He's just so overwhelmed. He's such a little baby. It's kind of like Herb on an elevator. Right. Yeah, he gets overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, he's not on a farm, but he is in a small space. and people come in and out and he's interacting with strangers and I don't believe that he just flips and turns in elevators but it's a similar kind of situation and so yeah that is so why I love the book what Mm -hmm. you just read I mean it's just magical and it and again for animal lovers really it just makes you smile it just makes your heart happy to think about think about this guy and of course Irv 
right. which I do. Sure. Constantly. Constantly. So, yeah, nobody will play with him. He's so depressed. Something else that I was a little bit obsessed with, and I didn't pull out the whole the whole excerpt because it was really long and I don't want to bore listeners, but there's this chapter where he's talking about his daily schedule. And oh my God, I love that. Hysterical. And it reminded me of like every pet we've ever had because we always joke that like pets have nothing to do. Like they, they just, we just work here for them. Like we serve their every need and they have these great lives. And so there's this whole chapter where Wilbur is talking about how like at 8 o'clock he's going to wake up. At 8.30 <laughs> he's going to have breakfast. At like 9.15 he's going to rest. At 10 o'clock, he's going to, like, stare at a spot on the fence and think about life. I just loved that. Again, like, E.B. White does such a great job of bringing these characters to life. I have a sign in my house that says, Daily Agenda. Let dog in. Let dog out. Let dog in. And, yeah, I, I pulled that piece out, too. And it made me laugh just because of the boredom that animals must feel sometimes, or I'm attributing that they're bored. And that routine of a schedule, like, is Wilbur OCD? Is he is he going to keep to this schedule every day? So I did think that that was hysterical. And I love the fact that it's so detailed. I think it goes for two pages of a description, yeah. which is which is kind of crazy about what he's doing. But, yeah, the, what are the secrets? It's like that movie, The Secret Life of Pets, yeah. which I couldn't wait to see. Spoiler alert. I didn't love it as much as this book. But I, loved I love to think about what these guys are doing in this house when I'm not around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hysterical to think about it. Yeah, we always say, like, does Irv wake up and, like, plan what he's going to do with his day? Like, does he plan out his naps? Does he plan out, like, when he's just going to lay with his eyes open? It's interesting. So I like I like getting that window. And obviously in this, like, farm setting, you get, like, more animals and, like, more kinds of animal relationships. And everything changes for Wilbur, of course, when he meets Charlotte. And Charlotte comes into his life late at night when he's, like, really bummed out. He's having trouble falling asleep, which I think is something that all kids can relate to. Or, like, you're sad or you're scared and, or you're worried and you're having trouble calming down and going to sleep. And he's really just feeling kind of sorry for himself. And as he's going to sleep, he hears this little voice that basically is like, if you look for me in the morning, I'm your friend. Like, I'm here. I'll be your friend. And one of my other favorite moments in the book is when he wakes up. And has this, like, formal announcement because he wants to find out who the voice was that spoke to him. And he wakes up and he says, attention, please. Will the party who addressed me at bedtime last night kindly make himself or herself known by giving an appropriate sign or signal? And everybody's laughing at him. All the animals are, like, piped down, basically. And he repeats himself. He says the exact same thing over again. And finally, he meets Charlotte. Um, And their first impression is kind of not so great because he realizes that Charlotte's, like, main hobby and pastime is trapping and killing flies, which I think is, like, a good lesson in first impressions for kids. Yeah, so you know the kind of work that I do. So when I was imagining these animals, actually, I was like, well, this is a little bit of a lesson on diversity, equity, and inclusion. (laughs) Uh, all of these animals in the barn, they're all invited to this party to be part of this barn, and they all have these very stereotypical, interesting personalities. And yeah, I thought their first introduction was, yeah, we're how you deal with a different species. How do you deal with somebody that's really different than you or has hobbies that are completely different than yours? And it's funny that the, a pig, like a pig, is repulsed by the work of the spider. Yeah. Okay, right? You know, you, you never get, did you ever really get the feeling that he was that filthy? I mean, I, I just, you kind of see him pink and perfect throughout the whole book. He he doesn't, I don't even think he really 
is written as this stinky, gross, dirty, disgusting pig. I mean, clearly in that role, we have Templeton. So, yeah, I thought the introduction was interesting and adorable. And isn't that where the salutations come in? I actually, I didn't pick up on the salutations thing in the book. I remember that from the movie, but I may have just, because I was looking for it in the book, because I very clearly remember in particular Charlotte's children at the end of the movie all being like, salutations. And I think that was something that Charlotte had said to him. Maybe maybe it she was. did say it. Is that how she says hello to him in the book? That's how I she think, introduces yeah. herself? Okay. I think that word comes up in the introduction. And clearly, you know, Charlotte is the academic Right. In the barn. Charlotte actually reminded me of my mother. Yes. A little bit. Totally. Okay, so now we're getting really creepy, a little bit creepy, but that's okay. You know, it was like, let me find a more intellectual word and fiercely loyal and a lot of the characteristics that my mom had. And I love to think about that. Let's say if you were Fern, I would probably be a little bit more Wilburish. Yeah, but you're more extroverted than Wilbur. But yes, I would say like you you would have been happy to take home the prize at the fair, whereas I probably would have been like, you know what, pass on the prize. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved the prize yeah. and I probably would have gotten it put immediately into a shadow box. I would have posted it on yeah. my social media. Totally. And it would have been really fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would have been like, you know what, we can just tuck this one away and forget about it. Yeah, put it in a box. Put it in the suitcase with my... With my nano baby. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, Charlotte was like more complicated to me this time around. And I don't know if it's because I remember her mostly from the cartoon where she has this very sweet voice. I think she was voiced by Debbie Reynolds in the cartoon. She has this very sweet voice. She's very kind. She's almost like a new kind of mother figure to Wilbur. Um, Obviously, he sort of had to leave Fern behind and Fern is getting older and like hanging out with boys and leaving the farm. So in the movie, I just remember her being like very benevolent and sweet. In the book, reading it this time around, she's tough. Like she has a tough exterior and part of that we get from his first impression of her where like in order to survive, she has to kill flies and that's upsetting to him. But just even in the way that she speaks, she can be very sharp with him. Like there's some tough love going on, which I liked. It wasn't all sweet. Yeah. Uh, She was definitely a woman with a point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And how can you fault that? I mean, the feminista farm version. Great. That's true. Feminista farm version. I like that. That should be the new subtitle of Charlotte's Web. Yeah. So they really come together when Wilbur gets this, like, devastating news. And it is devastating. The way that E.B. White writes it is extremely affecting because one of the, I think it's the sheep, um, one of the other animals, tells Wilbur that the reality of his life is that he's only being raised until the fall or the spring when he will be killed so that the farmer can eat him. And Wilbur freaks out because how could you not? And he's also a baby. He's only a couple of months old. And so he's like barely begun to live. And now he's being told that his his whole purpose is just to die. And Charlotte, after, after knowing Wilbur for only a very short time, takes it upon herself to hatch a plan to save him. And she says, I'm going to save you and I want you to quiet down immediately. You're carrying on in a childish way. Stop your crying. I can't stand hysterics, which I thought was like (laughs) such a great example of her character. She's like, I love you. I want to help you, but you have to calm the fuck down. And yes, everyone, I do say fuck in front of my mom sometimes. And we've, so we've moved past it. I'm going to save you. I want you to quiet down immediately. She's just like, calm down. I'm going to take care of it. 
Put your big boy pants on, Wilbur. Put your big boy pants on. Yeah, she's like, get it together. And she, like you said, is really smart. And her new role in life is to figure out how to save him. Fast forward a couple of chapters. She's used her web to write the phrase, some pig, so that when the farmer and his wife and the aides on the farm show up the next morning, they'll see Wilbur, like, sitting very cutely, I'm sure, under the spider web that has the words some pig written into it and obviously like he'll look miraculous and amazing and that's what happens the farmer is just blown away by what he sees and they start to debate like is this a miraculous pig his wife is like i think you have it wrong i think we actually have miraculous spider but either way the humans on the farm are completely just mystified by the fact that they clearly have a miracle on their hands how about the doctor there's like the doctor in this book i love the doctor yeah who's basically like like, so if you haven't read the book, Fern's mom is a little bit concerned about her just getting, she's a little, fo- a little too focused on the farm for her mom's liking. Well, and she also comes home and is like, this is what Charlotte said. This is what yeah. Wilbur said. She's like talking openly to her parents about the fact that she hears the animals speaking to each other. Right. So she decides she's going to go speak to the doctor about it who obviously knows Fern and the doctor you know they talk about why this is happening and the doctor is the philosopher of the book who basically is saying you know maybe we're not listening carefully enough essentially Mm -hmm. and I thought he wasn't in the book for more than a couple pages but he had this profound way of turning the book around into this statement to this way of looking at things differently that you know this isn't this isn't a mental health issue you know, we weren't talking about mental health issues in 1960 whatever we just weren't we were ta- you know this is an imagination and and believing and hope and listening and you're given these gifts and listen differently and i just thought that was he he played a really great role and i don't remember him from the movie at all but i definitely loved the small cameo he had in the book yeah he says it is quite possible that an animal has spoken civilly to me and that i didn't catch the remark because i wasn't paying attention children pay better attention than grown-ups if fern says that the animals in zuckerman's barn talk i'm quite ready to believe her perhaps if people talked less animals would talk more people are incessant talkers i can give you my word on that I agree. I don't remember him from the movie, but I loved his scene in the book. And I think, like, what's happened to all of the quote-unquote grown-ups because of Wilbur and because of what Charlotte's doing and because of the fact that Fern's sharing it with the other humans in her family and in her life is they're seeing that there's, like, something else beneath the surface that they just haven't really noticed before, whether it's that maybe the animals have been talking to them all along and they just haven't paid attention, or maybe there is something miraculous about these animals that they otherwise would have killed. You know, I think just this whole adventure between Charlotte and Wilbur and Fern until she gets bored of them, of course, is like a wake-up call to the adults uh, to pay a different kind of attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes adults don't pay as close attention as kids. And that's a theme that we've seen in a couple of the books I've done for the podcast, but I think it's like really direct in this book, which I appreciate. And and this is kind of where Templeton comes in at this point in the plot. And Templeton is kind of my favorite character. I think just because I have such fond memories of laughing at him in the cartoon. Like I just remember thinking he was hilarious and he has this really funny voice, like this sort of like drawl and he just cracks me up. He's a really funny sense of humor. So Templeton gets involved with with Charlotte and Wilbur because he goes out to the dump and like brings back 
back these little <laughs> pieces of paper with words on them because Charlotte's a spider and doesn't know that many words and she needs ideas of words to write in her web to continue her plan to save Wilbur's life. And he brings back all these random words. Like, most of them aren't helpful. And she's like, what is this? Like, I, you need to do better than this. And at first, Templeton is very reluctant to help, but then he realizes that there's something in it for him because as long as Wilbur's around, he can steal food from his trough. And so Templeton's like, okay, fine. I will help save his life. And finally, he brings back a scrap of paper from, I think, like a laundry detergent box that has the word radiant. So Charlotte uses the word radiant. At one point, she uses the word terrific. And I thought that in this whole segment of the book, there was this interesting conversation about like how we see ourselves versus how other people, how other animals see us. Because Wilbur kind of starts to doubt himself. Like he's seeing all these words about himself and Charlotte is attracting such a huge crowd to stare at Wilbur under these these words. And he's like, I don't, I don't know that I'm terrific. I don't know that I'm radiant. And she says, you're terrific as far as I'm concerned, and that's what counts. You're my best friend, and I think you're sensational. And I think that's like a really good message for kids because sometimes when you're a kid or when you're an adult, like you don't feel like you can live up to the words that other people use to describe you. And you just need like a friend to tell you, like, I think that and that's enough. Yeah, it's so affirming. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I can be that. Charlotte is in some ways like Wilbur's coach too. Totally. Right? So you can you can be that. You are that. Lean into it. Lean into your greatness. And and Wilbur does. He 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 begins to, you know, think of himself in a more positive way, which is wonderful. She provides this support, affirmation, confirmation of him that's really special. In the end she does save his life. They take him to the fair where I guess you take livestock to show them and he doesn't win first prize because there's this huge pig next door to him who wins the blue ribbon for I guess being the biggest pig but he gets like a special award like he's sort of like Mr. Popularity and he wins 25 whole dollars and Mr. Zuckerman is very excited about that and Charlotte sees it as a victory for herself because obviously she played such a huge role in making sure that he became a huge success which he was and she tells him like I'm really happy that you want I'm not going to be going home to the barn with you and he gets very upset and he doesn't understand and she has to explain to him like I'm laying my eggs but like I'm not gonna live much longer I'm getting old and he panics like he freaks out and she's the one who kind of has to explain to him that like this is how life works there's seasons and again he starts to question himself like you've done everything for me what have I done for you and she I think really speaks to like the value of friendship and just being yourself and not being enough and she says you have been my friend that in itself is a tremendous thing. I wove my webs for you because I liked you. After all, what's a life anyway? We're born, we live a little while, we die. A spider's life can't help being something of a mess with all the trapping and eating flies. By helping you, perhaps I was trying to lift up my life a trifle. Um, and they have this like very sweet goodbye. And to make a very long story short, Wilbur convinces Templeton to help grab Charlotte's egg sack and bring it back to the barn so that Wilbur can then take care of, of Charlotte's eggs. There's 500 plus babies being ready to come out of this egg sack. And in the end, three of them stay and Charlotte's daughters become Wilbur's best friends. And I think we're, we're meant to believe that there's all these other generations of spiders that grow up in the same barn and become Wilbur's new friends to carry on Charlotte's legacy. And he feels this like great responsibility to take care of them because obviously he wouldn't be alive if not for Charlotte. It makes me want to burst out into song because, of course, the 
circle of life. I wasn't sure if you were going to say burst out into tears or burst out into song. I got nervous well, for I'm, a second. I get, I like, I live closely on the edge of joy you do. and sorrow. So I'm deciding to be joyful. Uh, I'm choosing joy. So I love the fact that, first of all, one of my favorite things in the whole book is when these babies are born. They, like, he waits for the season. Charlotte dies and the winter comes and it's like the winter blues, the winter blahs. And then, you know, the, the little spiders are born and then they balloon themselves. Like the way he <laughs> uses these descriptors of these little balloons lifting them up into the air. It's so It's so creative. Cute. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It makes you realize it gives you hope. And I do think at the end of the day, this is a story about hope and that things get better and that seasons do change and you have to enjoy where you are. And I just feel like that is an important lesson for everybody. How do you think this book does or doesn't effectively teach kids a lesson about death? Because this is like really hard subject matter. And as somebody who is a mother and has, like, raised a child, me, and I'm sure, like, had to talk to them slash me about hard issues, how do you think that E.B. White supports or, like, doesn't support parents in having those tough conversations with a book like this? I think that he does a wonderful job of it, actually. And I think especially for children when they have pets and those pets go away, it's hard to understand. And it's really sad, but I think it's it's more than pets. You know, I think it like it's a good teacher, good teaching tool for children about about life and and living life full out and enjoying every moment of it. And that life is also full of there is sadness in life. And hopefully you get the joy back, but you might have to go through some seasons where you don't have that. And so I think it's pretty philosophical for a kid. I mean, I have, I had a date with my nine-year-old little sister last night. So I'm a big sister to a very wonderful little girl. And I told her that we were doing this today. And I asked her if she had read the book and I asked her if she had seen the movie. And I don't think she read the book. I think she saw the movie and she wasn't that crazy about the movie. She's not really a pet person. And I didn't want to have the conversation with her, but it just reminded me a little bit of, you know, when you give the gift of a book and you give the gift of this language, like how you are responsible for helping a child through it and understanding it in a different kind of way and not leaving them. Because this book could be very disturbing to a child as well. And I think that it requires parental conversation. It's not just read it and, you know, let your kid deal with it. It's one that requires more conversation about things. Yeah, it would be easy for a kid, I think, to latch on to Wilbur's reaction to death, which is to, like, lose sleep over it and be panicked and right. be upset. And so I think you're right. It's, it's a matter of being like, okay, there's these two different ways that we can talk about this, that we can approach this. And, like, let's talk about the happier option, because that's a little bit healthier. I so, just think it's all about the process. Yeah, I think so, too. And I'm glad that you read this book to me and I'm sure it helped me learn about some of these things and I think I already know what your answer is going to be because you already sort of told me before we started recording but overall has reading this book for the podcast now in 2019 made you love it more has it not held up for you as compared to when you read it both when you were a kid and then when you read it with me when I was little it absolutely held up 
to all my expectations and more. It actually was a little bit healing for me as an adult reading it. And so I can't wait till I get the opportunity to share it with my future grandchildren someday. You can read it to Earth. Yep, I'm going to read it to Mia. Today we're going to start reading out loud because she's become she she that's my mini golden doodle. Mm-hmm. So we'll start reading it. But it is it is one that it's funny. I just was at a baby shower and we were giving books, and I chose another book that you would love called Chicka Chicka Boom Boom, which mm-hmm. was just like a really fun book to say out loud. But I think in hindsight, a book that I would love to give in that kind of a situation, I would probably give a child the book Wonder and this book because I think they have beautiful lessons in them. I think that's a good starter kit. I agree with that. So I know we're coming to the end of our time together, but before mm-hmm. we close out, I know, but luckily I get to talk to you later because you're my mom. Before we close out, I am wondering if you have any other book recommendations that you would like to share with our listeners. Sure. I thought about this. I'm prepared. I thought you might. And I actually am a serial reader in the sense of I read a couple books at the same time. I read a lot of nonfiction uh, for my business. So I actually, the book that I just finished reading was Girl Stop Apologizing book by Mm -hmm. Rachel Hollis. And I didn't know how I'd feel about it. And you and I were together when I started reading it and you had some opinions about her. I actually loved this book and I am going to feature it in my newsletter this month because I think it would make a great Mother's Day gift for somebody. Like, I think every man should actually read this book. And I just thought it was a really good read. She's very funny and she's spirited. And she really talks about the struggles of being a mom. I absolutely love that one. I've been reading a book called The Pilot's Wife, which is about the Lindberghs and the kidnapping of their baby. And I that's the second book that I read by this author. And I really, really like it. And I would say, especially because it's around Mother's Day, Another book that I recently finished that I loved was Michelle Obama's book, The Becoming. And again, I think as a mom, that book is, it's not a political book to me at all. It's about being a working mom and showing your kids how to, you know, how to manage so many different things at one time. So those are the three that I'm reading. I will share one other because it's a really powerful book. So my book club, the Inkhorn Book Club, which I'm giving a shout out because I know my fellow Inkies are listening to this podcast. And we just finished reading a book called It's Not That Bad, which is a book about date rape and the date rape culture. And it was incredibly provocative book and um, it raised a lot of issues for us and so I would say it's a big recommendation for book clubs. Great well I will include links to all of those books in the show notes for this episode along with a link to Charlotte's web. I will also include a link to my mom's website over at Think Good Leadership in case you want to check her out maybe get onto her newsletter list I obviously have learned a lot from her, and I think everybody has a lot to learn from her. Mom, I'm so grateful that you took the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for reading this book with me. Thank you for being my awesome mom. And I just love you so much. And I just love you so much. And it's so fun that we share this love of words, and this was really fun. Thanks for um, letting me ask. My, you know, I kind of invited myself on, but hopefully you're pleased with my work. Well, the true story is that I had planned to invite her on for Mother's Day and the day, literally the day that I was going to ask her to be on for Mother's Day, my mom sort of like casually was like, so um, are you looking for any podcast guests? And I was like, you totally stole my thunder. Introvert, extrovert thing as always. I was like, I had this, I worked out my whole plan to ask you. 
But however it worked out, I'm glad that you are a guest and I'm excited to introduce all my listeners to you and I hope they can just tell our voices apart. Great. Thanks, Al. Have a great day. You too. Give bye. Give a kiss for me. I bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.